0: Welcome to Simply by Grace, a podcast of Grace Life Ministries, with founder and director Dr. Charlie Bing. This podcast and other helpful resources can be found at our website, gracelife.org. Now, here's Dr. Bing. So today we're going to be in the book of Jonah. Last time we went through chapters 1 and 2. Today we're going to go through chapters 3 and 4. And we're going to have a lesson in divine compassion. Jonah was a prophet of northern Israel, you remember, during a very prosperous time under Jeroboam II. In chapters 1 and 2, we saw how he disobeyed God's command to go to Nineveh because of the cruelty of the Ninevites. He did not want to have anything to do with them. And he went the other direction towards Spain, but God caused a storm. The sailors threw him overboard at his own request. And the sea calmed, but a a whale, a fish, a large fish, swallowed him. And he sunk to the depths of the deep. And he prayed out to God. And saying, and God saved him. Salvation is of the Lord. And the whale threw him up on dry ground. So, that's a whale of a tale, but... We have no reason to believe it is not true if God has said it. And Jesus even cited the story in the New Testament. So now we're in chapters three and four. Some of you are old enough to remember 1979, November, when Iranian students stormed the U.S. Embassy in Iran and took 59 Americans as hostage. They were hostage for over a year until 1980 when Ronald Reagan took office and they released them. During that time, there was a a tremendous outpouring of compassion for these people who were hostages and daily prayer and daily television updates and nightline, I think began at that time even. Also at that time, there was a convention of missionaries, about 4,000 had gathered and a Christian leader was speaking to them And he said, how many of you are praying for the 52, I think it is 52 American hostages that are kept in Iran? And about 4,000 hands went up. And then he said, how many of you are praying for the 42 million Iranians held captive to Islam? And about four hands went up. And he said, well, I see that you are Americans first and Christians second. Hard words, isn't it? What if I said, how many of you are praying for the Hamas hostages in Gaza? Counted to be over 220 some people, over about a dozen Americans. Are you praying for the release? You should. How many of you are praying? How many of us are praying for the Hamas group and the Palestinians who live there? You think that God loves any of them more or less than he loves even us. Do we have the same compassion that God has for people of this world? That's I think what we're going to observe in this story about Jonah. You know, I think we realize that compassion when we first became Christians, if you can remember back that time and you were very active in sharing your faith with other people because you were excited about it, but also because you really cared about people. You usually started with your family. And you were so exuberant in caring for them that you kind of turned them all off. So it's hard to it became hard to talk to them at all. But that was that was great enthusiasm that was driven by compassion. But slowly over the years, there's many things that can distract us from that compassion. Take our interests off of the things of the Lord, whether it be our job, our family or school, uh, hobbies, things like that. For me, in some ways, I could say it was even going to seminary because you get your head in the books and you get to studying and worried about deadlines and papers and and graduating and so forth. And I guess some could say, I just got colder by degrees. Ha ha. I have one friend who says, He said to me, he said, I was a better evangelist before I went to seminary. I think because he was closer to the people and then the learning kind of distracted him from all that. We cannot as a church lose our compassion. Even though these statistics are a little bit old, I think that they ring true today. This is in a study from a book called uh, Street Level Evangelism. He said 95% of all Christians have never won a soul to Christ. That's a startling statistic. 80% of all Christians do not consistently witness for Christ and less than 2% are involved in ministry of evangelism. Now that may not be true here, I don't think it is, but he's talking about evangelical Christianity as a whole. Why is that? Is it not because we have lost somewhat our compassion in our heart for people, and we have failed to meld in our hearts with God's heart and compassion that he has? The story today, of course, focuses on Jonah, but God really is the main actor in this book as he directs things and, and, and teaches Jonah a lesson, so to speak. So when we come to chapter three, Let's just read that. It says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and preach to it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three-day journey in extent. And Jonah began to enter the city on the first day's walk. Then he cried out and said, Yet 40 days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. That was his message. God commanded Jonah, to go a second time. God was giving Jonah a second chance. He's persistent in this priority that he would even use someone who disobeyed him to go. And he's also a god of second chances. And so Jonah has a second chance and he goes to this great city. Uh, we don't know exactly what the population was. It talks about a three-day journey that may be the city itself and the metropolis area, it would take three days on foot to walk through it all, or maybe around it all. Some estimate that there were 120,000 people there um, who were younger people, which would make a population, according to chapter four, make a population of about over 600,000 people. So it's a pretty big city at that time, considering that most cities were very small. So Jonah goes this time But he doesn't doesn't go out of compassion, he goes out of chastening. You see, what's important to God is that he gets his message across, not so much that he has the exact right messenger or the exact right motives. With God, it is always message before methods and message before messenger. When I teach evangelism, I don't start with how to do evangelism and teaching people methods to do evangelism. I start with the message. What is the message? Because that's what God uses. The messenger is just a tool. The methods are just tools. The message is what God is about. The greatest thing about the gospel is the gospel, not the preacher. And God wanted to make sure that that message got to the people of Nineveh, even if it was through a very flawed and once disobedient Jonah. So then we come to verses 5 through 9. And we see something amazing happen. The people believe God. It says, So the people of Nineveh believed God, proclaimed a fast, and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. Then the word of the Lord came to the king of Nineveh, and he rose from the throne, his throne and laid aside his robe and covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. And he caused it to be proclaimed and published throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, saying, Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything or let him eat or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily to God. Yes, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who can tell if God will turn and relent and turn away from his fierce anger so that we may not perish? So it says that when they heard the message of Jonah, they believed God. They repented of their attitude. The word here means to be sorry uh, in, in the original language for what they did, they changed their mind, but they also were, were intent on changing their works and doing away the, uh, with their evil way, it says, and the violence that is in their hands. You remember we talked last time about how violent the Ninevites were as Assyrians and how they treated their enemies and how they captured them. That same violence and cruelty you saw recently when Hamas invaded israel and killed and murdered children and burned them alive and threw grenades into bomb shelters full of people it's heartless and difficult to talk about but nothing much has changed with the cruelty of those people those uh very militant people in that day and today and so the king commands them all to proclaim this fast and uh, and to Repent from all that violence and the evil that they are doing. He even says that the animals should not uh, he includes them in this repentance with sackcloth and eating and drinking. What sense does that make? I think it's just the way of the king showing how sincere they were in their repentance. That it's we're even going to include the animals in this just, just to show that we really do have a change of heart here. And why did this why, why were they so convinced so quickly? Well, first of all, God's message has power, right? God's word always has power. The power is in the message. And God's word doesn't return to him void. But secondly, I wonder if it had something to do with Jonah and the fact that here he is, he's been in the fish's belly for three days and he appears to people. Now, how do you look when you've been in a fish's belly for three days? I never want to find out. But you know, the acid in the fish's belly could have bleached him white. And so here's this guy walking up to them bleached white, I don't know, and he certainly got their attention in some way. Uh, Some people believe that there were uh, certain natural incidences that happened at that time that got their attention. Some think that historically they claim there was a plague at the time that was killing a lot of people or that there was an eclipse of some kind that caught people's attention. But they did repent and because of that, uh, God saw their works. They changed their behavior and he also changed his mind. So it says, <clears throat> God saw their works, verse 10, that they turned from their evil way and God relented from the disaster that he said he would bring upon them and he did not do it. What sense does this make when it says that God relented? Actually, the word is translated into the Greek and into the English as the word repentance and I think the old King James uses that word so God repented God also changed his mind because they changed their mind I think he's speaking here from a human perspective and how things appear to us it looks like God God pronounces judgment we change our behavior God changes his mind and attitude towards us so God can change his mind, so to speak, at least from a human perspective, and uh, did not go through with his punishment. I think there's some things that we see here. First of all, against all odds, it seems, the Ninevites believed God and his message. I think people like the Ninevites, even today, are more interested in God's message than we think they are. That may not be so true in a place like America or in Europe where the message has been heard and uh, has been ignored for so long. And, and other things like immorality have taken the attention of society and culture. But around the world, it is very clear to me that there are places where people are extremely interested in this message. And there is an explosion of interest in places like Africa, in places like Asia, and even among the muslims from what i hear so people are more interested than we think that they are i read somewhere that one quarter of the people that you know would come to church if you invited them they're more interested than we think they are so we don't invite them but one out of four would come according to somebody's uh, study People are more interested than we think. And you know what, I think it also shows us that God is more compassionate than we think. He loves all people, even the cruelest, most evil of us. If if he loved the Ninevites, does he not love the Palestinians who have done such atrocities even in recent days? They are, after all, made in his image. And Jesus, after all, did die for them Also, as hard as it is to imagine that God could love such a people or that we should pray for such a people, that's the extent of God's compassion. I think something else that we should notice from this is that God uses people to reach people. And here he was gonna use Jonah even though Jonah wasn't the perfect vessel for that message. God saved us and he commanded us also and left us here for a purpose do something that we cannot do once we get to heaven or once we get to be with him. The scriptures tell us that faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God, but how can they hear without a preacher? And so God uses us even among in our flaws. While we're praying for people to come to Christ, Christ is pleading for us to go to people. And so the scripture, I think, with its commissions in all four gospels and even in the book of the beginning of the book of acts is telling us to go 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 to the people to all the nations of the world you know i like to fish my first rule of fishing is go and fish where the fish are you can't fish in your swimming pool you can't fish in your wash tub you have to go where the fish are well where are the fish in your life are they at your workplace are they in your neighborhood are they, are they in your classroom, at your job? That's where you can go fishing. That's where you can share the gospel. That's your purpose there. What can one person do? What can one church do? What can a small nation do? You have Israel, a very small nation, in the midst of all these large countries surrounding it. What can one nation do? God called Israel to be a witness for him. And here he called this little prophet Jonah, to be that spokesperson to all of Nineveh. But you know, God doesn't need a lot. He can work with a little. One person plus God is a majority. You know, I figured out that if I took all of my net worth, it wouldn't be very much, but if I combined my net worth with Elon Musk, I'd be worth $235 billion. (laughs) So, By ourselves, we're not much. In fact, Christ says, without me, you can do nothing. But what if God combines his power with your obedience? you got a winning team, right? So the Bible says, when you go, I will be with you always. He says, if you ask anything, I'll do exceedingly abundantly above everything that you expect. So go in faith that God is with us and we have him on our side. We're not small when God is with us. Well, the northern kingdom of Israel was taken captive by the Assyrians in 722 sometime after Jonah's prophecy because they reverted from whatever happened to them um, when they repented. Um, By the way, what happened to them when they repented? Some people say that they repented of their works, but they never really believed unto salvation. And so God spared them temporal judgment, just uh, some physical judgment that he was going to bring upon them. Some people see in this story that they believed God and repented of their attitude about God, and they were actually saved uh, in, in the eternal sense, in the spiritual sense. And uh, that can be debated, but I wonder if why God would save a people from temporal judgment, a physical judgment, and then let them go to hell shortly afterwards. It doesn't make a lot of sense to me because his compassion would extend beyond this life into eternity with eternal um, purpose for them. So, Whatever happened, they reverted back to their old evil ways and by the time Nahum preached to them about a hundred years later, they had forsaken the Lord and so Nahum came to pronounce judgment upon them. And the Ninevites ended up taking captive uh, northern Israel in 722. And so Israel today uh, is in darkness and under God's spiritual blindness. I pray for Israel, but it's not because Israel loves the Messiah. I pray for Israel because I know they have a special place in God's heart and that someday they will come to know the Messiah. So we have to pray that Israel be preserved. And the scriptures teach that they will be. But it shows us that if we don't evangelize as individuals and as a church, we will fossilize. Israel let down from their task of evangelizing the world. And because of that, they themselves went into spiritual stupor and God had to judge them with the Ninevites. If we don't evangelize, we'll fossilize. People need to hear the message and there's two kinds of people, those who need to hear it and those who need to tell it. I think that we should all renew our commitment to tell somebody about the Lord Jesus Christ and his saving power and his saving grace this week. Who is it that you can tell the man who comes over to do your air conditioning repair, your heating repair, the auto mechanic working on your car, that relative who's having difficulty? Can you pray for that person? Can you maybe go to that person or invite that person and share the gospel with them? When we come to chapter four, we see we've seen God's message through Jonah. Now we're going to see God's message to Jonah. Because Jonah has a little issue here going on, okay? an Anger issue. He didn't go through uh, anger management class with God, but God's going to put him through it real quick here. So let's read verses 1 through 4. <clears throat> but it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he became angry. So he prayed to the Lord and said, Ah, Lord, was not this what I said when I was still in my country? Therefore I fled previously to Tarshish, for I know that you are a gracious and merciful God. Slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness. He's quoting Exodus uh, 34, verse 6 there. He knows God is abundant in his kindness, and he's merciful, and he's gracious, and he's slow to anger. One who may one who relents from doing harm. Therefore, now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. Jonah is angry. And so It's kind of ironic, God abandoned his anger on the Ninevites, but Jonah picked it up. And now he's angry with God. If you're angry with God, you're angry with the world. In verse two, he explains the reason why he ran to Tarshish. It was because he knew that if he preached the message and God loved these people, that they would repent and they would be spared God's judgment. And he felt with every cell in his body that these people deserved to be judged severely. And he was going to have no part of God, sharing God's love with them. And yet that's exactly what happened because he knew God's character. He quoted Exodus 34, 6 about God's uh, patience and his, his loving kindness. And so then he had a death wish. It made him so miserable that he asked God to take his life. Sometimes people figure that it's easier to die than to live. And so Jonah couldn't live with this anger and I guess uh, we would call it um, emotional cognitive dissonance about trying to reconcile God's love with these terrible, terrible people that just blew his fuse, we might say. And he was ready to cash it in and die. He even guess God to facilitate that So what a contrast we have here. He thanks God for saving his life in chapter two when he was at the bottom of the ocean in the fish's belly. And he had great joy that God saved his life when he was regurgitated up on dry ground. But now that joy has turned into anger when God saves Nineveh. He lost his perspective. He's very self-centered. In fact, this first person pronoun, I, 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 appears In the original language, I think nine times. And so he questions God's whole perspective on this. And then the Lord questions his perspective, Jonah's perspective, when he says in verse 4 Is it right for you to be angry? Is it right for you to be angry? Some people share the attitude of Jonah, strangely today. I don't know about today, but there have been historical incidences where people thought, well, you know what? If God's going to reach the lost, he'll do it without us. Sometimes that extends from a strong deterministic theology that believes God's going to do what he's going to do. It doesn't matter what we do. In fact, when William Carey wanted to go to India to share the gospel, he wrote a paper about it. And when he presented it at a group of ministers, they rebuked him one, one moderator stood up and rebuked him and said, "Young man, sit down when God pleases to convert the heathen he'll do it without your aid or mine.'re If God wants them to get saved, they 'll get saved they don't need us." That was the attitude there. Is that our attitude that well we can just leave the world to God and, and, and what he's going to do, and if he wants to save them, he'll save them? Unfortunately that's sometimes the undercurrent of thinking in some theologies that are very deterministic, that God has elected some and that they'll be saved no matter what. We don't have anything to do with it. Some would say, well, we, we can share the message, but it doesn't mean that they'll be saved because, through us because God has already elected them to salvation and so forth. Well, God has a little object lesson for Jonah to go through. And uh, let's look at that in verses five through eight. So Jonah went out of the city and sat on the east side of the city because he'd been moving from west to east probably. So he sits on the east side of the city. And there he made himself a shelter and sat under it in the shade till he might see what would become of the city. And the Lord God prepared a plant and made it to come up over Jonah that it might be shade for his head to deliver him from the misery. So Jonah was very grateful for the plant, but as the morning dawned the next day, God prepared a worm And it so damaged the plant that it withered. And it happened when the sun rose that God prepared a vehement east wind and the sun beat on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. And then he wished death for himself and said, it's better for me to die than to live again. We see the death wish. Now this east wind, um, he's on the east of the city and he's hot so he, he finds a shelter of a plant and he's He's saved from the heat, and he's delivered, we might say, from this misery by the plant. But there's an east wind that comes, and it's known today as the Sirocco wind. And they say that the temperatures can get uh, in excess of 110 degrees. Now, we had one, one day of 110 degrees, I think, in September. It broke all the records here. That was a hot day. You didn't want to go out in it. Especially if the wind was blowing, it's like a, like a heat blast, heat blaster. But can you imagine being without shelter, air conditioning, or any way of cooling yourself except to hide in the shade of a plant? But even in that shade, it would be very, very hot. And so that's where he found his comfort from this hot east wind. And so God has this object lesson for us, for him, and uh, and he's waiting there to see what God's going to do with the city. God lets him experience misery, the misery from this heat. And he, he had misery in the sea, but God, that was a great object lesson. But now he has a second object lesson under the plan. God was going to teach him to have compassion by going through this difficult experience. Oh, quite a few years ago, I remember watching a movie called The Doctor. William Hurt played a doctor. And this doctor had a very cold and uh, and, and, um, cold attitude towards his patients. He didn't have any compassion towards them. Then he gets brain cancer. And he himself has to go through all these treatments and he's treated successfully and he heals from his brain cancer. When he goes back into his position of teaching, he takes his intern students and the first thing he did was make them spend the night in a hospital and make them take a barium, um, what's the word I wanna use, enema. Yeah. That's a word you wanna forget, isn't it? He made them take a barium enema and a, a GI uh, exam, which I think is a colonoscopy, and they, they were miserable but he wanted them to feel what patients feel so that as doctors, they would be more compassionate. It was an object lesson for them. This is an object lesson for Jonah of what it's like to be miserable, what it's like to have a somewhat of a salvation from the heat, for example. Well, God brings the lesson home in verses nine The rest of the chapter, then God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? There's another question. Is it right for you to be angry? How about angry about the plant? And he said, Jonah says, it is right for me to be angry, even to death. Jonah was justifying himself and thought he was correct in his thinking. But the Lord said, verse 10, you've had pity on the plant for which you have not labored nor made it grow, which came up in a night and perished in a night. And should I not have pity on Nineveh? Should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which are more than 120,000 persons who cannot discern between their right hand and their left and much livestock? Now again, he mentions 120,000 persons who can't discern from the right and their left. That may mean young people. And if that means young people, then the population would have been probably over 600,000. Or he just may, may mean that these people are... Spiritually unaware. They just don't have any spiritual discernment. So he's getting Jonah to think. And you notice how Jonah talks back sharply to God, even though God is gentle with him, asking questions instead of rebuking him. God takes a gentle approach. Now, Jonah, is it right for you to be angry? Yes, it's right for me to be angry. He, He needs to take that anger management class, doesn't he? God doesn't come to him and say, stupid. People are more important than plants. He's patient even with Jonah. And then he reminds Jonah, look, you don't have any investment in this plant. You didn't make it. I'm the one that made the plant. And then he reminds him, Jonah, I have a great investment in Nineveh. I created the people of Nineveh. And there's a lot of them. And they're spiritually unaware, spiritually ignorant? Shouldn't I have compassion on them? And they even have much livestock. Now, why is that brought up? Well, the livestock was brought up in the last chapter as those who were included in repentance. I don't know exactly why that's brought up except the fact that God, God's love extends even to animals because there are laws in the Old Testament that animals should be treated humanely. And if God is compassionate even with animals and provides their food and drink and protection for a day or for their lifetime, how much more does he care for people? If he cares for the sparrow, how much more does he care for people and the Ninevites? What comes out from this story is very clear to us. God loves people. Not populations, but people. So what's the conclusion of the story? We don't know because Jonah doesn't tell us, but evidently Jonah lived. He lived to write about it, to write this book. And he wrote this story with awareness, I think, of where he had gone wrong and how he'd misjudged God's character, how he'd misjudged and neglected God's compassion. And so perhaps he wrote this story as a rebuke to his people, his nation of Israel, a warning to them that they were living in self-centeredness, exclusivism, callousness, racism, because the Jews took pride in the fact that they were God's people, that God had chosen them, that it was, uh, they had privileges that other people did not have, that they were given the word of God and the covenants. But all of those privileges came with a responsibility that they never exercised. God wanted them to use that special position to be priests and a nation of priests to the rest of the world to show them the message of God. But their attitude was extremely selfish. As Jonathan Swift said, we are God's chosen few, all others will be damned. There is no place in heaven for you. We can't have heaven crammed. (laughs) Maybe that was the attitude of the Jewish people. So what is God's message to Israel through this book? That they were being self-centered and not sharing God's love and compassion with even their enemies and that God wanted and uses people who will share that message. And I think that's where it applies to us today, is that true compassion has to be selfless. Our motives can be selfish. We can go out and witness so that we can have good statistics or write a good report or justify people who are supporting us. Some people may want see people saved so that they have a safer environment or safer society. But we don't really sometimes desire what God really wants, that they're saved for their sake and because that's what God's heart wants. God saves people for His sake, not theirs and not ours, but for His sake. It brings glory to Him and it pleases Him. And so compassion, is to be centered in other people. You know, the word compassion means to suffer with. That's what the word literally means. And so we learn to suffer with people like those interns who were forced to spend a night in the hospital in that movie. So the question again, are we suffering and feeling the pain of the people of the world. And that includes even the most vile, vicious terrorists like Hamas. I know that's a challenge to your heart as it is to mine, but it has motivated me as I went through this passage again to pray for even them. Not just them and the the people of Gaza and the Israelites, but the terrorists themselves. Is it possible that God could save the terrorists? Did you know? Maybe you've seen it because he's been on TV some and he's written a book called Son of Hamas about the son of the founder of Hamas, one of the founders of Hamas. The son was converted, became a Christian. He's written a book about it called Son of Hamas, which I read a couple years ago. And he's been on uh, TV lately giving interviews and so forth. You can look it up on uh, Fox Nation. I saw a special the other night. I forget his name, but, it's, but uh, he was the son and he now realizes everything they did. He rejects it and he's a follower of Jesus Christ. Yes, there's hope for them. God's love extends even to them. But we have to be careful that our selfish concerns don't displace the compassion that God wants us to have for other people. I mean, what are you really passionate about in life? That passion can overtake your compassion for other people. We're so easily distracted by our concerns of the world, good things, or by our hobbies or something that maybe are a little bit wasteful. I don't know. Does your compassion extend through all of your activities I work out several days a week when I go to the gym I try to kind of get my routine over with fairly quickly time is always of the essence for me so I'm trying to rush through it and I just want to do my work and uh, and get out of there and sometimes that causes me to neglect the people around me you know I, ex- I extend greetings to change a few words But I think God wants more from me for that. So my prayer on the way to the gym often is, God, it's all about witness, not workout. It's about witness, not workout. I keep saying that to myself and to God so that I will be reminded to take a little more time because I see the same people every day, take a little more time to share with them my life, ask them about their life and maybe work the gospel in as I've been able to do a little bit. You know, I don't know, did you watch the, the Texas Rangers lose dismally last night? Pretty bad show, although they won the first game. I would love to have been there. I have a preacher friend in Fort Worth. He goes to these games, big games like this, and he always gets in free, or at least for 20 bucks. He'll, the most he'll pay is 20 bucks. He got into the game. He never buys tickets. I heard the minimum ticket for the first game was $580. So. So Ken, Ken went in there, and he, he stands outside and says, you got any tickets? Anybody got an extra ticket or something? And somebody gave him a sign says, I need one ticket. So he held that up. He got in game one. I don't know if he had to pay or what. He got in game one, but he says he never pays more, more than $20. He does this all the time, and 99% of the time he gets in through these games. Amazing. How would I get off on that? OK, so you're in the stadium, and I don't know. How many does it hold, 50000 60000 more than that? How much? 46,000, 46, okay. I like going to games. I like the atmosphere, I like being there, I like the excitement. But what ruins it for me is sometimes, and I almost always think this, Lord, here's people screaming about a leather ball that makes no difference in their eternal life. And most of these people are going to perish eternally. Kind of ruins it for me, for those moments. I enjoy the game, but I can never enjoy it 100% as other people are, because that's my thought. And that's my thought about not just sports, but so many other things. Rush hour traffic, people are rushing to work, rushing home, trying to make a living, cutting you off and all these things. Trying to find the compassion to think about them as God would think about them. Going to a mall, which I try not to do these days, and seeing all the people or any any crowd festival or uh, event and seeing all the people having a good time but thinking to myself, God, this doesn't count for eternity. And where will these people be in eternity? To be like God, we have to have a selfless compassion for all people, not just for our tribe, not just for our country and We can go to all people in some ways it's not so important that we go with love in our hearts because god can use us like he used jonah even though jonah didn't love the people to whom he went god doesn't tell us to wait until we love them and then go does he he just says go and share the gospel because he loves them even if we can't find that love but i think that once we go and we get to know people and are obedient to god we will come to love them But it is more effective if we go with love. And even if it's not our love that we ask God to give us his love, his compassion so that we can feel their pain, feel their uh, isolation from God. See them as fathers and mothers and sons and daughters and children and not just a population but people. We need to care about them. People don't care about how much you know until they know how much you care. Well I think the main message of Jonah that we should see as we looked at the whole book now is that God loves people. He loves all people. And he doesn't call his people to be saved, to be receptacles only of his blessing as Israel was and as we are. not to be a receptacle or collecting pond, but to be a channel of blessings to others. And Israel failed to be that channel. And so God had to rebuke them with a book like Jonah. We should not fail to pass on the blessings that we experience to other people. If the church doesn't evangelize, it will fossilize. That's what we're here, left here to do. And we need to learn to love people enough to reach out to them. Hopefully we don't need a Jonah experience. Something tragic in our life that would really get our attention. Time is short. But God's patience doesn't doesn't extend forever. Someone said that there's a point at which patience ceases to be a virtue. In other words, if God never judges and he just lets things history and nations and people go on and on and on without ever judging them, then we can't say that he's a just God. At some point, God has to exercise his judgment on those. He exercises it on Jesus Christ, but those who reject him, he has to exercise it on them as well, as he did on um, Israel and as he did on uh, Nineveh a hundred years after Jonah's time, which we read about in the book of Nahum. So God's A patient God, a loving God, but that patience can't exist forever, can't go on without judging people. And God has judged Jesus Christ so that we might know him. And now we are to share the message of his grace towards others. So perhaps today is a time of self-examination. Have I been faithfully passing on the blessings that God has shared with me? What opportunities can I see now? How can I have more of God's heart and more of God's love? How can I love the people around me more than I do? How can I tell them about the saving message of Jesus Christ and his love that brought him to the cross to pay for our sins, rose him from the dead, raised him from the dead to be a living savior who can give us eternal life if we only simply believe. Thank you for listening. For more resources, or to help spread the message of God's life-changing grace, visit our website at gracelife.org. We'd love to hear from you. Send us a message at simplybygrace at gracelife.org. See you next time.